The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. Welcome on board the Good Ship Talking Space for Sunday, November 21st, 2010. My name is Gene McCulka, and I have two of our usual suspects with me. Good evening, Gina. Welcome back. Hey, Gene. How are you? Pretty darn good there, Gina Hurley. Thank you for joining us tonight. And Mr. Mark Ratterman, how are you doing today, sir? I'm only here in audio. I'm not really here. At least that's what's at least that's what Skype thought a minute ago. Yeah. Let's oh, let's go while the uh while the fire is hot. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, we we experienced just a little technical difficulty before coming on the air air to uh tonight, so but uh we're, it looks like we're back up and cranking again. Anyway, we've got a lot to cover tonight. Um our, our issue one here is uh the STS one thirty three mission and uh its current status. Uh during the week uh, it looked like that we had a new launch date announced. Uh, that was going to be December 3rd. Well, that's, is that being qualified, Mark, or, or, or what? Because I know that there was a press conference that was originally scheduled for Monday, which is tomorrow, but I believe that's been pushed back now, correct? Right. They've changed the uh, press conference from the 22nd to the 29th. And that's the one that's referred to on the uh, on the Kennedy News as being the uh, launch status briefing. So the the actual launch status briefing won't be until the 29th. There'll probably be some information out the day before Thanksgiving because they are meeting to discuss uh, the day before Thanksgiving. They'll be talking about uh, work that's been done and progress and how they feel about it. And uh, moving forward through the weekend to get ready to for that December third date is currently proposed. But boy, I'll tell you one thing: I realized in reading things lately, the whole business of spaceflight is so extremely complicated. Uh, they're talking about the third; they've got other options for up through the seventh. But then they talk about some what ifs that might happen, where they could fly in the middle of December or late December over the calendar rollover to 2011. And it's complicated business. I won't even try to, to describe any of that, but uh, it's out there to be read if anybody wants to read and see just how involved all this is. But uh, I'm impressed with one thing that you mentioned, Gene, about that they're going to fly when they're ready to fly. Indeed, Mark. And uh, on that note, um, apparently it was a, a rumor running around. It wasn't reported by the press, but it was sort of circulating in and around the the Cape area with reference to that, um, that there was some sort of, you know, scheduled pressure or something like that going on. And, and there was some chatter about that even on Twitter for a while. And my 
my feeling was that, uh, you know, I, I don't think there is, there was any schedule pressure, at least not for this one, because there's only what, three, you know, two flights left, um, with the third possibly coming up. And, uh, well, apparently that made its way up the line to, um, Mr. Leroy Kane, who's, um, uh, also involved with the, uh, the management of the program. Um, and just, uh, if the name rings a bell, Leroy Kane was also the, uh, reentry flight director on STS-107. And, uh, he's, understands firsthand, unfortunately, what, uh, what can happen if you, uh, you rush things. So, uh, uh, he basically came out today and this was reported on an article from, uh, from NASA Spaceflight that I believe was either issued today or, or recently. Uh, saying that, uh, you know, there have been some intimations both inside and outside our immediate space community that we may be operating and influenced by schedule pressures as we work through this problem. This is, this is troubling, he noted, and basically saying our next launch period has worked with our friends at the ISS program is the November 30th through December, December 6th launch period, and if there's a way to make it, we will do that. Um, but again, he, he basically emphasizes that if we can't make that, then we are we will not, and we're not going to do anything until we are ready to fly and fly safely. We have other launch periods, as we always do. Uh, basically, mentions the February window that's currently slated for SGS-134. So, you know, it looks like they are really, really erring on the side of caution here. And uh, I applaud them for doing that. Again, you know, I, I just personally, I didn't see what the schedule pressure would be, if it was a budget thing or, 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 or what, but um, I, I just didn't see it. So, you know, again, I, I, I'd probably pass that off as bunk myself. Anybody else want to fire anything off on that? I don't know. It seems like it's, it's still a pretty tight window. I would not at all be surprised if this did not even make December 3 to 7. I just hope for the sake of the astronauts and their families, which I probably feel a little bit jerked around already emotionally with so many launch attempts so far, that they make that call well in advance of December 3rd. If they can't get the repairs done to the tank, see what else they have available to push it off. But I have also a bad feeling that the longer they push it off, the smaller the likelihood of 135 flies. So, I don't know. I suppose... um, they have to find a happy medium, but I just don't want to see them rush. And 135 doesn't happen, anyways. I just have a real quick question for you, Gina. Why do you think 135 might not fly if 133 doesn't, um, you know, doesn't uh, happen quickly enough? I'm, I'm just again, I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Uh, well, one scenario I saw was that because of the. Um, the solar beta cutout angles for most of January would keep a space shuttle on the ground for most of January. Well, of course, I mean, if, if it pushes to the middle of December, they're flying over Christmas, which I guess isn't the end of the world, but it involves, you know, an entire ground team of people working over the holidays, which I'm sure is not optimal. Second, then, if they go until, if they wait after that window, um, I don't think it's possible to dock with the station in January. So now they're basically almost slide into 134's window, um, which means you still have to get the 134 flight in. And I believe the way 
that the money is supposed to be appropriated to fly 135 means the shuttle program has to be 100% complete by the time um, the fiscal year ends or the federal fiscal budget year ends, which would be June 30th, 2011. So in flying over Christmas, I believe they would have to land. I think there's something about the way the shuttle's computers operate is more of a, um, like a Y2K problem. Right. That's so right. So I think that would put their landing possibilities at, uh, the 29th, the 30th or the 28th, the 29th and the 30th, leaving them, um, you know, if they had to go all the way up to the last day, you know, they would have to take the landing anywhere they could get it versus trying to bring the orbiter back to Kennedy Space Center. Of course, that's more money. That it, what is it, a million dollars to ferry a shuttle back from Edwards to Kennedy Space Center? Might be wrong on that, but, you know, um, I think it's 500000 to a million dollars to ferry a shuttle back. So if they do launch in the middle of December, they would either have to cut the mission short, and what good is that, or... Um, they're looking at some serious landing constraints. One of the things you mentioned on computers, I'll fill in a little bit that I recall. Um, apparently, they have to do a, I'm going to call it a computer reset. I don't remember the details of it, but um, it's something they would normally handle on the ground. It would be in the uh, in the hangar, in the OPF. It would not be in flight. But they've come up with plans where they can do this reset of the computers if it's docked at the ISS. And so, you know, this is a whole other series of, of, of risk analysis that they would go through as to do we want to be flying during a time frame when we would have to do this? And, um, you know, that's, that's more complications. Apparently the beta cutout is is a bit more of a variable than than I thought it was. I thought December was pretty much a write-off, but apparently there are some opportunities in December that they can use. But there again, it can, depends on, uh, you know, do they want to do what they haven't uh, what they haven't done before with this computer reset that would occur on orbit. I heard something too that if if they were going to have to launch in the Christmas window that 600 pounds of payload would have to be offloaded? Right. That was payload considerations, too. Yeah. They they lose some up mass, but they get an advantage due to... <laughs> uh, this is too technical for me. I'm too simple-minded for some of this uh, orbital mechanics stuff, but they lose a little, they gain a little, they, they gain a little, they lose, they, you know, pick up a little more here and there. Wow. You know, I, I, to me, though, I would think you'd probably want to wait until you would be able to go ahead and get all the gear up because again that's uh you're looking at a uh, uh removing payload and um do you really want to do that with only three flights left right they even address uh consumption of o2 and i don't know if that's through uh fuel cell use or crew use or it's complicated um, so we still have the continuing saga of STS-133, and uh, just stay tuned. Hopefully we'll get all this together. NASA's uh, Office of Inspector General 
released an re- interesting report to uh, NASA Administrator Charles Bolden. This was November 12th. It uh, basically identified uh, some challenges for the agency going forward uh, post-shuttle. To quote the report, uh, we believe the following issues constitute a the top management and performance challenges that currently face the agency today. The future of U.S. spaceflight, the acquisition and project management process, the infrastructure and facilities management process, human capital, information technology security, and financial management. Basically, it went into a little bit of the transition and the retirement of the space shuttle program, um, basically saying that uh, this transition, the transition and retirement activities, and I'm quoting right from the report here, associated with the end of the shuttle program present one of the largest such efforts ever undertaken by NASA. The shuttle program is spread across a hundred hundreds of locations, occupies what they're saying 654 facilities, involves more than 1.2 million line items of personal property property, and a total of uh, equipment acquisition value of exceeding $12 billion. And the challenge of deactivating all this is, is the biggest thing NASA's ever really had to deal with. One of the other things they mention is that the commercial launch providers uh, will have to go ahead and uh, what NASA's role really, really will be. Uh, mentions one issue is the uh, intent to uh, human rate any new flight system, um, whether it's developed commercially or by NASA. And NASA, they're saying, that only recently developed a comprehensive human rating standards for, for their own development system. So they're saying that basically NASA's got to go ahead and sort of reevaluate what it, what it has to do to balance, you know, I'll, well, just, just to quote the report, NASA must balance its role as a partner um, of, communi- of commercial providers with its responsibility to ensure that the commercial product or the vehicles that the, all these commercial folks are going to provide are safer for NASA's astronauts. Um, I'll just throw that out to you guys as far as any comment on that particular piece of information is concerned. Well, I'm going to be the grouch on this one. I would be more concerned about the uh, Office of the Inspector General being uh, useful in this whole process. I'd be more critical of them than I would be of NASA. How so? Well, you know, they're going to raise valid points. But you you reach a point with anything. How much time and money do you want to spend dotting the I's and crossing the T's? Okay, so they got, uh, what was the number of line items of inventory you said, Gene? Uh, Let me go ahead and pull it up here again. I think it was something like one point, yes, I'm I'm sorry, 1.2 million line items of personal property and equipment acquisition with a value exceeding $12 billion of that whole thing. Okay, big deal. I bet you at least one of those items on that list is a desk. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry, there's a lot of important, very, very unique, very expensive, et cetera, et cetera. But, but how much, I, I've seen this in the FAA where tremendous amounts of money get spent to account for every little minuscule piece of property. And then at some point, 
in order to expedite things, a contractor comes in and they bring up a couple of 18-wheelers and they say, okay, this stuff goes in the 18-wheeler and goes off to scrap. This stuff over here goes out the front door to the dumpster and goes to the junkyard. And, uh, okay, it's done. The facility is gone. We've uh, depleted its value down to zero. Have a nice day. Uh, you know, so in the meantime, prior to that event, which took a few days and some money and et cetera, and a contractor doing the service, prior to that was you know, inventory, inventory, let's have another inventory, let's go over this list, who has this, who has that, you know, okay, the inspector general's office is doing something, the taxpayer wants them to do it, we want our money to be accounted for, we don't think, we don't want fraud and abuse and et cetera, et cetera, but phenomenally ridiculous amounts of money are being spent doing things that if they just let the managers, the administrators do their job and find the best solutions to problems. I think they could do it for a fraction of what they're going to be forced to by the rest of the government. And I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, so much for the OIG. Well, in, in their defense here, I'll, I'll, I'll bring up a couple of things here. They're, they're basically asking NASA to go ahead and think outside the box when it comes to the heavy lift vehicle. They cite, too, that the NASA Authorization Act is saying NASA develop a, a NHLV or a heavy lift vehicle. The Authorization Act, however, encourages, and I'm quoting directly from the report here, um, the extension of existing vehicle development contracts associated with the Constellation program. This latter directive may limit NASA's ability to move away from the, the design architecture of the Constellation launch vehicle to explore alternative architectures. They're basically saying, guys, you're, you're, you were developed, we're starting from scratch. Don't let the old program limit you in what you can do. So they're they're basically saying, you know, don't don't rely too heavily on the on, on the old constellation infrastructure. And they mentioned the same thing with the Orion crew exploration vehicle. If you have to go ahead and, and, and design something from scratch, don't heavily rely on something that was limited to the old program. Think outside the box, come up with something new. So, you know, again, to their defense, they're they're coming up with that. And you had mentioned there, Mark, something about um, uh, contract management and things like that. Well, uh, something I wasn't aware of is that NASA spends approximately 85% of the $18 billion budget on contracts and awards. I wasn't aware that it was 85%. Wow, that, that's, a, that's a staggering number. Uh, they also mention uh, NASA's Small Business and Innovative Research Program. And uh, they're saying that some of the award recipients from that got contracts for essentially performing duplicate research and offering deliverables of questionable research products. So there, there's something, there were some things, irregularities going on in there. So indeed, you know, they're, they're just trying to be good stewards of the, uh, of the taxpayer dollar. And again, they... They brought up a, a, a something with, um, I guess it was, who was it, uh, the Zero Gravity Corporation or ZOG, um, the guys that uh, go ahead and uh, basically you can, you know, plunk down $3,000 if you want to and go ahead and fly a couple of parabolas. Well, um, the contract award uh, was set up that ZOG would get 100% of that contract award and 100% of the money 
if and on, you know, only if they flew 60% parabola successfully. But to me, they're, they're, you know, you're getting 100%, but you're only delivering 60% of what you said you were supposed to do. So they're trying to be you know, good stewards of what, what's going on. But again, I can see your point, Mark, um, well, with reference the, to all this. The, the zero G is a nice example, but what's the rest of the story? Are the factors that could that could uh, scratch some of their parabolas off of a planned flight? Is it things like weather? Is it things like air traffic constraints where they don't have the airspace for the period of time that they need it? Uh, you know, they're still flying a jet, burning gas, personnel, and everything else, so they've still got the expense, even if they shave, you know, maybe 10% of their parabolas on a, on a given flight. Maybe they shave 10% of them off because of things beyond their control. So I think that's what the leeway is in that case, although it's certainly, certainly dramatic to pay somebody 100% for 60% delivery. But, uh, you know, maybe there's a reason that it's those numbers, and that doesn't, that's not reflected in this report. And you'd really have to talk to somebody on the inside to find out, you know, more about how that particular program works. But I appreciate the good stewardship because I've seen people take advantage, and, and badly so. Um, not personally, but things that make the headlines that you know we read about over the years. Hopefully, uh, hopefully not NASA's problem. Just the OIG being proactive, which is uh, their prerogative. Yeah, the other thing too that they had mentioned was uh, that NASA's facilities. NASA officials also report that more than eighty percent of the agency's facilities are 40 or more years old and beyond their design life. So they're basically saying, hey, NASA really does need an infrastructure, you know, look-see and basically saying, look, you know, we've got some aging uh, facilities, aging laboratories, and some money really, really needs to be injected into this. True. And uh, I'm sure NASA appreciates the fact that somebody else is bringing this up as an issue because I'm sure that they have been crying for money for years and believe me i can relate to aging facilities uh, a vor that i maintain was commissioned in 1958 wow. now it doesn't have the same equipment inside but the structure itself is the same and there are challenges to to uh, maintaining things and i mean this is just a small little 40 by 40 foot building but imagine the vab imagine some of the uh, headquarters buildings at Kennedy or at Johnson Space Center, places that have been around for, like they say, 50 years, 40 years. Imagine, imagine the, uh, the changes just in, in uh, connectivity from old dial-type telephones to having Internet connections available and uh, the security and such as that. I mean, that's, that's where they need some... Uh, they need some modernization, and, and they have done a lot of modernization because it wasn't too long ago. We were talking about a new new building that they uh, finished. Was it in Houston that was uh, kind of a, a real award winner for being a green structure, a green office building, I think? They've got some solar facilities at uh, Kennedy, too, that I've seen. And so, the- yeah, those are all good points on uh, on infrastructure definitely valid and it's going to cost money i guarantee it's going to cost money but it's got to be done yeah agreed if we're going to we're going to keep our space program you know relevant these things really really need to be done the other thing too that you talk about infrastructure and and all this um they mentioned uh 
what NASA may need to look at for keeping their you know whatever is left of their their workforce after uh, after uh, the shuttle ends. Um, and to quote them, it says NASA faces an increasing competition from private sector for the best scientific and engineering talent. Moreover, as its workforce ages, NASA will face particular challenge particular challenges. Excuse me in attracting and retaining highly specialized skill sets to sustain key agency capabilities. That, I guess, is, is uh, government speak for there's going to be a brain drain. So they're, they're, they're basically saying, look, you know, we, we've got to basically get, you know, figure out ways to keep, uh, to keep the, the best and brightest that we have. And uh, also they're talking about, uh, in regard to the future works, workforce, they mention here STEM, and NASA is going to need to continue programs like uh, the Summer of Innovation program that was launched uh, this, just this past year. And uh, NASA also sponsoring competitions, uh, and they mentioned the uh, Environmentally Responsible Aviation High School Student Challenge, which invite, invited uh, high school students to propose ideas and design for future aircraft that use less fuel and are less, uh, har- you know, less harmful for emissions. So... They're basically saying that the, these are things that need to be funded and, and, and new programs like that need to come forward so in this way we keep uh, any type of future astronauts and future future engineers and future designers of, spa- of, uh, of spacecraft uh, uh, enthusiastic and wanting to go into these fields further. And speaking of the future of the astronaut corps, they mentioned, that, they mentioned it as well, they're trying to figure out the proper role and size right now of, astro- of, of the astronaut corps uh, post-shuttle. Uh, basically saying NASA's enlisted the National Research Council to conduct a study in examining the role and the size of the astronaut corps following the shuttle's retirement. Any idea, you know, from you guys uh, what that should be? I don't think you need to have a fixed size. Um, obviously, I, I don't think they're going to be recruiting new classes of astronauts while there isn't a rocket for them to fly on. But I think over time, I think the people that would be occupying the seats are the best engineers to work with the vendors or the contractors that will be designing whatever that next vehicle is. And I think um, time and patience will weed out the rest. Um, You know, these people are type A personalities, and if they don't see themselves getting seat on a rocket anytime soon they may go elsewhere anyways so i mean i don't know if a policy needs to be made on it that would be a horrible thing for um people or fans of the space program to watch american astronauts laid off due to uh you know redundancy um so i hope it doesn't come to that but i think it'll naturally work itself out Just a quick highlight. I remember seeing a news release, and I'm looking at one that doesn't tell the story that I remember reading about, but I'll try and give a quick synopsis of it. On IT security, I remember reading that, uh, that there was a contract uh, that was, that was uh, awarded to a company for IT-type support work for NASA. And I remember the, uh, the write-up described it as being that it, NASA doesn't need to put its resources and personnel into maintaining IT infrastructure, that that needs to be contracted out and that uh, this was part of that. And I think this addresses part of that, uh, part of that 
Inspector General write-up that we're talking about is that uh, they are going to apparently move in that direction to, to get out of maintaining server farms and let it go to private industry, and I think that's probably a good idea. Yeah, so this way they can go ahead and concentrate on their core, you know, I hate to use the, the evil buzz, evil business buzzword, buzzword here, but their core business. Um, yep. And, uh, so that was, yep. that would probably be a good deal. You know, just go ahead and give it to folks that, that understand it. Okay. This is a, a little bit of a follow-up story to something we, that you and I, Mark, had mentioned uh, last week. Um, and Gina, you were the one that actually brought this uh, blog post to my attention. This is from, uh, from Wayne Hale. Um, he had uh, uh, mentioned that uh, there was going to be a train wreck in, uh, in commercial space, and, and the enemy was actually uh, coming from within. Um, that enemy being NASA itself, uh, in his estimation, he had read a, uh, a, 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 Gina, help me out here a little bit. He had taken a look at a, um, a report basically outlining the requirements for, uh, a, uh, for a man rating, or was it just overall the requirements for the spacecraft in general? I think it was overall the spacecraft in general. Okay, um, and, and basically said I think he cited there was a, like a 260-page report um, that uh, uh, said uh, you know stated that these were all specifications, and in that 260-page report there was another 74-point table of some sort that basically also threw out more specifications for a potential commercial spacecraft. So in his estimation, you know, NASA was, was, was trying to go ahead and, and bog down the development of this thing, or at least, you know, maybe not intentionally, but uh, uh, his idea was like, look, just, just set forth, you know, a basic outline of specifications and let these guys have at it. Uh, that includes the, the safety stuff, you know, let them go ahead and uh, let NASA go ahead and develop some basic guide, guidelines. But you folks, you've been, you know, orbital, you know, you've been building stuff for 20 years. Lockheed Martin, Boeing, you guys have been building stuff forever. You guys have got to know, you know, safety. These are our basic guides, guidelines. We need you to fulfill them. But we're going to entrust you to go ahead and and develop your own safety systems and so on. Um, and I think that's what he was he was trying to say. Um, well, um, there was some fireworks after that. Uh, apparently, he uh, uh, wrote a uh, another blog post called "Cleaning Up the Mess," and apparently, folks have have taken his comments the wrong way. Um, he, uh, he said that the first reason was because uh, the initial blog post was uh, uh, basically giving uh, fuel to uh, all sorts of, quote, anti-NASA venom. Um, and uh, he blames himself for not realizing that some of his words could be you know, sort of misconstrued and used against him or used to, to, uh, to hijack you know, his, uh, Mr. Hale's thoughts for his own purposes, as he put it. 
Um, and he basically said that uh, folks were saying that there's some cabal within NASA that are that's trying to kill commercial spaceflight. And his idea is, you know, his 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 uh, thoughts on that idea is, is basically bunk. Um, to quote him, uh, the folks who have worked in the spaceflight safety all their careers and built the requirements document under discussion are trying their hardest to build a good system. In his opinion, he says, I think they just need to, to, and they need a course adjustment. That's all. And secondly, he said that it was brought to his attention that people in, in within Washington were using his criticism that, to say that the nation should not embark on commercial spaceflight development. And, uh, he explains that his old boss, Bill Gerstenmeyer, had always said that, you know, he should be careful what he says and because it could be used against him, you know, by political forces that, uh, that NASA faces. And um, uh, Mr. Hale suffers from the same thing I suffer from. You know, he basically was saying he was never really good at keeping his mouth shut and it, diplomacy was not his best skill. So, um, but he basically reiterates... Um, what's go- going on here? Uh, he said, we had a, had a plan to replace the shuttle with a smaller, less capable system that would allow us to resume exploration, and it sounded like a good idea, but he says, we've killed it, and the replacement is supposed to be commercial spaceflight. Well, he admits here, personally, he thinks it's a stretch, but if, if it's what the country wants to do, let's give it a shot. You know, shoot, it might even work. Um, but he's saying... But if we killed that, then what? What do we got? We've got reliance, total reliance on, on, on the Russians. And they don't like that idea, by the way. Um, yeah, I don't know if you folks have, have read his rebuttal. Um, any thoughts or any commentary uh, with reference to both of these things? First off, before I even continue, I hope, and this is just my own little editorial on the whole thing, I'm hoping, Mark, we didn't come across like we were trying to say that NASA internally is trying to go ahead and kill commercial spaceflight by throwing too much red tape at it. If we did come across that way, that's not exactly what we were trying to say. And um, you know, again, we, you know, I'm gonna if if that's what we did, then then I'll I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and and do a little bit of a retraction here. But uh, I'm hoping we didn't come across that way that we were sort of like attacking uh, Mr. Hale on this point. So, any comments with reference to uh, both blog posts? Well, it's obvious from from a lot of this discussion that change is going to occur. It may be a little painful. Uh, it some of it may be necessary to actually have it be forced. Uh, some of it may be uh, what takes place in the legal arena with attorneys uh, trying to debate the meaning of documents. But uh, I think it will happen. I don't think NASA, certainly I don't think NASA is trying to block anything because they've got a mandate that, that keeps them in business if they, if they don't have a, a rocket to, to fly. You know, they've still got a job to do. Yeah, it, it would be in there. You know, it's right now the way things are configured. It's in NASA's best interest that that commercial work. Um, this way, 
in the hopes that if commercial does work and that, uh, you know, we can get, uh, uh, you know, little earth orbit taxis going, that NASA itself can go back to what it does well, which is exploration, and allow commercial to go off and, and deal with low earth orbit while NASA deals with going to the moon, Mars, and beyond. Um, again, to just to re- reiterate with, uh, uh, with, with what uh, Wayne Hale was saying, um, he was basically saying do what uh, NASA's launch services program does, require that providers have standards and follow them. You know, don't make them, you know, pick a particular process. Let them develop their own processes. Um, figure out what processes fit their business model best. And as long as they've got safety standards, just make sure they stick with them. And, and that's, that's, all, that's all he was trying to say with this whole thing. So uh, hope that, that clears that up. There were also uh, two launches that occurred this this week. One just uh, a few hours ago. One on uh, on Friday at uh, at uh, seven at around oh, let's say seven thirty ish Central Time. Uh, this was a uh, an orbital Minotaur four rocket which carried several small satellites uh, for the U.S. military, NASA, and uh, some university students. Spaceflight now um, on their uh, site has got some very interesting photo, photographs of the uh, Kodiak Alaska launch site, one of which I, I just had to laugh. There was some bison on nearby, uh, nearby the launch pad, and I, I just was looking at that and going, wow, um, you don't see that every day. Um, but uh, again, these were uh, small microsats, and Mark, you had, uh, you had some interesting observations that one of the, the microsats uh, was using leveraging Twitter, and had some pretty inventive uh, things to say about uh, about itself. Sure, just for uh, just for terminology, uh, payload on the Minotaur four rocket was a fast sat. Did you cover that already? The fast, affordable science technology satellite. No, sir. That's all yours. Okay, so fast sat. Uh, there was a conversation apparently going on between uh, the payload via Twitter and, and FastSat. We don't hear FastSat's side of the conversation, but uh, Twitter account under NanoSailD, that's N-A-N-O-S-A-I-L-D is in Delta, NanoSailD, uh, sent up a tweet about the launch, and it was exciting and doing really good, and says, by the way, Captain Fassett, since you are communicating with the ground people, please ask them to check my locker for my iPod. I seem to have left it, too. And uh, let's see. Uh, this this nano sale, by the way, is going to, uh, this part of the payload is going to, uh, open up a sail that's approximately 10 square meters in size, and it's going to give a little bit of, uh, you know, actual on-orbit science to the idea of using the photons from the sun as a propulsion method against the sail. And uh, if you take a look at the NanoSailD Twitter account, uh, one of the tweets, it says, Still dreaming. My twin went to sail school before I did. He tried to be a sail knot, but unfortunately ended up as an aquanaut. Uh, let's see. Uh, ring, ring, ring. Yes, 
Captain Fast said, no, I was not sleeping. I was uh, meditating. Can I get out of my box now? Not yet. Okay, Captain. So there's a good sense of humor with this, and it's something that kind of reminds me of uh, Mars Phoenix back back a few years ago. Yeah, um, I was... you got to appreciate just, that. I was just thinking about uh, about the Mars Phoenix account as you were talking about that. I thought that was kind of cool. Go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's just kind of a short story. There's, uh, there's, I think, six small onboard uh, atmospheric and technology demonstration experiments that will be up on there, and people read up on it if it interests you. But uh, nice to see a, a small launch from a place we don't think about. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, and again, I was just taken aback with uh, the photographs of the, uh, the bison, which were not too far away. Excuse me from the uh, from the launch pad there. I thought that was kind of kind of uh, you know interesting. There's something you don't see every day. Um, also today, um, at about uh, just a few hours ago, at uh, 5:58 um, this evening, a uh, Delta IV heavy launch vehicle launched from uh, from Cape Canaveral, Florida, uh, with an NRO reconnaissance satellite on board. Um, this is primarily used, the, the uh, reconnaissance satellite is primarily used for defense uh, purposes to go ahead and not just see what the bad guys are up to, but also for, uh, for you know, treaty and uh, uh, other verification like that. Uh, but it's also used uh, by, uh, by civilian uh, rescue agencies and things like that. So in the event that there is a, uh, a natural disaster, uh, the satellite can be, can be uh, brought over, brought to bear on that, and take a look and see what uh, what's going on over there, so uh, we can understand uh, what uh, immediate needs there are uh, for that particular region. So, this is this was a criti- critical satellite launch today. Um, well, with that, um, Gina, you had some very inter- you had a very interesting adventure about uh, oh, good lord, about two weeks ago, um, while at uh, Cape Canaveral, Florida, helping us cover um, STS one thirty three. There, um, I believe you attended a uh, an autograph show to uh, benefit the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. Correct? Yep, I have attended this um, event a couple of years now. It's for the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation, and they have an annual autograph show at Kennedy Space Center. And it's really um, a privilege to be in the same room with such an outstanding faculty of astronauts. They're just, um, you know, these are the guys that are the heroes of the current classes of astronauts. And there's just a lot of adrenaline in the room. There's a lot of excitement and a lot of enthusiasm, and it's... um, it's a really good time. We went to Kennedy Space Center. We spent probably four hours um, at the Astronaut Scholarship Autograph Show event. And um, in the matter of a couple of hours, um, each moon landing actually had an astronaut there. Um, so those six flights were represented um, quite well. And, um, you know, within a couple of hours, we talked to six out of the only 12 guys that have ever walked on the moon. So, um, wow. It was, I mean, you know, they all have stories. They're all very willing to talk to you. You sort of have to pick your spots because, um, Jim Lovell, Buzz Aldrin and Al Bean are always, always swarmed. Gene Cernan a bit too. Um, but 
Scott Carpenter was there <clears throat> with uh, the the non-astronaut um, celebrity in the bunch, which is uh, Dee O'Hara, who um, was nurse to the original Mercury 7 astronauts and certainly has a lot of stories and tales. But um, she was kind of quiet and reserved, very lovely woman. Um, Scott Carpenter, I've talked to her, talked to him a couple times. Um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of these guys, I mean, they're getting up there and um, I visibly could definitely see um, the slowdown in a few of them, but, you know, they were all very engaged still in, um, you know, willingness to talk to you. He signed, um, he signed an autograph for us. Uh, Walter Cunningham, who we've interviewed here on Talking Space, talked to him, went over, thanked him again so he could put the face with my voice. Uh, my family talked to him for a few minutes. Uh, Buzz Aldrin um, really was a highlight. Uh, my son probably had six or eight minutes with him alone. Um, it was just at the right time that we happened to nab him. And um, he was chatty and wanted to talk. He talked to my son about what he was learning in school. He wanted to know what my son was interested in. Um, he was showing my son his ring because uh, he has this very cool uh, moon ring, or it's the shape of a crescent moon with some stones in it. Um, they talked a little bit about the T-shirts Buzz has for sale, his Rocket Hero stuff that you can see on his website, because my son picked out one that he wanted. And I happened to ask him a question about what does he think about chemical rockets or solid rocket boosters. Well, that was six minutes of how... Um, you know, that, that should be a thing of the past. We need a versatile rocket with, that the Air Force can use, NASA can use, commercial space ventures can use to get payload into space. And he was just delighted that somebody actually asked him something about rockets, and he was willing to talk. So he kind of drew a crowd then. Um, we took some pictures, and um, we moved on. But uh, Fred Hayes, who was seated next to Jim Lovell, uh, Fred Hayes signed for us. Uh, Jim Lovell, I've got his autograph a few times. So we talked to him. Always like to talk to him about his restaurant. That always gains points when I tell him I've been there. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. You, are you from Chicago? No, sir. You know, but, you know, I went to Chicago and visited. We made a special trip up there. Oh, lovely, lovely. You know, uh, I talked to Ed Mitchell for a while. Um, you know, he would have talked to us all day until eventually someone else came along. So we. We moved on. Of course, he walked on the moon on Apollo 14. Um, we saw Dave Scott. He had signed for us last year, so we said hello, took a quick photo. Same with Charlie Duke, signed for us last year, so we just told him that. He said hello, took a quick photo. Um, my son actually talked to him a little bit about the movie The Wonder of It All, and um, which was nice because, you know, Charlie Duke is, in, in, you know, I mean, a lot of those guys are featured in that, but... I don't know, my son asked him a question about um, where he was sitting when the movie was made. And um, he was actually featured at a, a San Antonio hotel. So he talked to us about that for a little while and the making of the movie, which was pretty cool. And uh, Gene Cernan, my son idolizes him because I got to tell you, um, for a guy that's well into his 70s, he is a, he's a rock star. I mean, he's just a stud. He's so, you know, in shape still, and, um, you know, he loves talking to kids, and you can just tell 
got my son right over there. You know, what are you learning in school? Make sure you study hard. Do you want to go to the moon? You know, and my son just lights up at him. He, he remembered talking to him last year so clearly. And, you know, I'm so glad he got another opportunity to see Gene Cernan. Um, but you know, my son's absolute number one hero is Al Bean and what a line. We probably waited in line over half an hour to get to him. Um, I let my son pick out a um, photo of one of his pieces of art, which he signed. And I had explained to Mr. Bean ahead of time where and, and the gentleman that was there assisting him through the process, what a big fan my son was of him and his artwork and his um, spaceflight career. And the way they had his autograph priced, it was just supposed to be um, to my son's name. But after talking to my son for six minutes, and can I tell you, I think my son is still, like, shaking over the fact that he has now met his hero three times. And I told Mr. Bean about our previous two meetings with him, and he said to me, thanks for all the all the background. And he wrote a very lovely inscription well beyond what, what I had um, paid for. And, of course, most of the proceeds of this do go, I mean, the astronauts get some of it, some of the astronauts sign and give it directly to the scholarship foundation, but I think a lot of them split it, and it probably helps subsidize their travel to the event as well. But he wrote a very lovely um, inscription to my son, and it, it was just, uh, I took several photos of those two together, and it was just really a nice moment. But um, we talked to a lot of the Skylab astronauts, Jerry Carr, Ed Gibson, Joe Kerwin, Vance Brand, who was there, and, of course, he did a... He flew on the Apollo-Soyuz test project. Um, Fred Gregory, Andy Allen, Hoot Gibson was there with his wife, Rhea Seddon, John McBride, Bob Springer. Um, gee, I hope I'm not forgetting anyone. But, you know, another just really phenomenal event. The um, autograph show is only one part of the weekend that they do at Kennedy Space Center. This is sort of becoming an annual thing early in November. They do a huge, like, gala dinner and a few other um, special VIP events that you can, you know, I mean, of course, this is a fundraiser for their scholarship foundation. So there's a few other VIP events that you can pay for and get guaranteed time with these these astronauts. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the, uh, the autograph show is open really to anyone, and it's also... Uh, packaged up with an, an auction. They had some phenomenal stuff that you could have bid on. I mean, really, really cool stuff. We actually bid but lost. Uh, maybe I was relieved because where the price was at the, that point, but on a, a signature by Michael Collins. Uh, but they just had some phenomenal memorabilia that's probably either come from the astronauts or the astronauts' families. They had one huge, I mean, this is the size of a bedroom wall, um, five by seven feet, uh, framed, matted, um, all of like the first 43 astronauts that have ever flown in America, their mission patches, their name, and an autograph for them, including Neil Armstrong's. And I think at the time, I think it was up to like $23,000, $25,000. Just really some very impressive stuff. Stuff that's flown in space, stuff that you know, has been NASA memorabilia, but again, a very worthy cause. 
the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation donates $10,000 per one specific student um, every year. They give a $10,000 scholarship um, to 19 students at 19 specific colleges and universities. And these students are, I think, juniors or seniors in undergraduate school and graduate students who um, are pursuing engineering and science. And a couple of students, I think, have won the one actually more than once. Uh, sometimes they'll come to some of these events and they'll talk about their accomplishments, what they've been able to do with the money, their research, and so forth. Just some phenomenal stuff that these guys are funding. Um, you know, they've really, they've really uh, inspired a lot of young people. And um, I think the the students that are in the program and have won the award, I think the money sometimes is almost secondary to the opportunity to hang out with these guys and talk to them on a very one-on-one collegial basis. So um, it's always something I've supported. I've supported the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation now going back to, oh, 2005, and a uh, very worthy cause. They do a lot of events. You can donate um, anyways to them if you don't have the opportunity to travel. You can also donate by um, bidding on um, some of their other regular auctions that they do, but their website is astronautscholarship.org, and you can check out what other events and so forth they have in um on their calendar coming up. Um, they usually do a big event in May as well, which is um, the Hall of Fame induction, where they'll take the next class of astronauts they're going to induct into the Astronaut Hall of Fame. And uh, they have a, you know, a really excellent um, event under the Saturn V rocket and the Saturn V center at Kennedy Space Center. And they try to gather up as many of the, um, you know, these first few class of astronauts that are still willing and able to travel and get him there for the night. And it's, it's a pretty special event. So I've been to that a few times too. But um, if you have the opportunity to get to one of these events, by all means, go for it. It's uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal undertaking to be a part and be in the presence of these guys who, to me, they've always been my heroes. So I'm pretty much awestruck when I'm around them. Yeah, I'm, I'm just picturing... You know, just knowing I've met your son, and it's just, I'm picturing what was going through, what must have been going through his head. Here he is with all of these these incredible individuals. I and mean, what an experience that must have been for him. I mean, that must have been just, just amazing. Is he still trying to get over that? or? Yeah, or he's, still, he's still talking about it. He really is. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know who Al Bean is and then if he was the fourth man to walk on the moon or what, but... Uh, my son sure does, and he will talk to anybody who will listen to him talk about Albin. So um, it certainly has, you know, and I, I could have gone to the Gala event this year, but to me, I, I made a personal decision. You know, my other son's three. He's still just trying to, you know, he's still trying to figure out all of this stuff now and who these guys are. But um, to me, it was more important that my sons had the opportunity to meet these guys, shake their hands and say hello more than, you know, me going to another dinner that isn't really appropriate for kids their age. But I just made a personal decision as a parent that I think they need to, to meet and greet these guys and, and say hello to them. So I'm awfully glad they've had the experience to do so a couple of times.
Yeah, it makes, indeed. No, it I'm sorry, makes a difference. It, it, I was just going to say, Gina, I, I guarantee it makes a difference because, you know, they'll grow up and they'll remember having met somebody that did something that was in the history books. And uh, I've, I've got some recollections of my own having nothing to do with the space program, but with people that I know were at events that were part of history. And it sticks with you. It makes mm-hmm. it real. It gives you a basis for for study that uh, you you can't uh, you can't just find uh, necessarily with without that little that little bit of solid uh, solid fact to stand on. Right. I appreciate you telling us about it. I mean, I remember you mentioned it, and we talked about it last year. And uh, at this point, not having been there this year as well, <laughs> I'm kicking myself. But uh, I got to find a way to uh, to be there next year because uh, it, it's an extraordinary time. And every astronaut, uh, when you and I were at, at KSC for the for the countdown, that uh, that never really never really made it. But we've met a few astronauts and talked to them, and they're exceptional people. They're they really are a cut above, and, and well worth the investment and the time to to talk to them. I mean, I, I was getting goosebumps. I'm just picturing. Uh, um, I'm just picturing your son uh, uh, going through all of this, and, and just wow! I mean, that that must have just just been an incredible experience. I mean, and and I again, hats off to you, Gina, for for giving your son this opportunity to go ahead and meet these folks that, that literally had a hand in, in changing the world and the and, and the universe the way we see it. So really, you know, I'm. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that, that's all I've got to say. Is just I, I envy your son seriously. Well, get to one of the events. That's what we're going to have to have to do, Mark. You and I. That's it. We're going next year. Talking and, space tweet up. Exactly. Uh, hey, Gina, just out of curiosity, the name. Uh, we'll, we'll plug Jim Lovell's restaurant here. The name. Uh, Levels of Lake Forest. All right. Cool. In Lake Forest, Illinois. So, and, the, and it's worth to go in there to see all the memorabilia from not only the movie Apollo 13, but um, all of the stuff in his own personal collection. Wow! Just still, I must have been an amazing time. And again, this is this is this happens every November at KSC, pretty much. Yes. Yes. It, well, it has certainly. Um, yeah, they don't have a date on their website yet for 211, but it has happened the past couple of years, the first weekend in November. Okay. And uh, again, the, the, the other event in May, it's usually around the same time? Um, it's always to commemorate Alan Shepard's flight, which is so it's always the first Saturday in May. Cool. Great. We'll have to, I'll have to make a beeline down there for uh, no pun intended. Um, to uh, to hit the uh, to hit KSC during one of those two windows because it's uh, I think that it would be one heck of an experience for for you know, to to see all that and again it all goes to a great cause. All right, if there's nothing else, and I don't think there is, that pretty much wraps up. Uh, talking space number 239 for Sunday, uh, November 21st, 2010. 
Uh, Gina Hurlheath, thank you so much for sharing your adventures over at KSC. I, I'm, I'm still going to be thinking about that tonight as, as I drift off to sleep. That was incredible. Seriously, thank you so much. And no, thanks for welcome. being here today. And uh, Mark, as always, thank you so much for being here here today with us. My pleasure. And thank you, Gina, again for that narrative on the uh, astronaut event. Sure thing. And Sawyer, uh, Mr. Sawyer Rosenstein uh, could not be with us tonight because of uh, his little trip out to, to Arizona. And uh, he's had some connection uh, issues there, but he will definitely be joining us uh, next week. So, again, Sawyer, sorry you couldn't be here, and we look forward to seeing you again. And uh, with that, we'll call it a show. Take care, everybody, and uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>